Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this gathering. Thank you that you build your church, not us. We are to be faithful lovers of your son, lovers of the word of God. Men and women, boys and girls who are bending our knee to your lordship. Allowing you to guide and direct our lives in every aspect. Holding to the central truths of God's word from from Genesis to Revelations, believing them to be from you, Lord. Not departing because of the culture. And so, Lord, we pray that even this morning you would strengthen us to hold dearly to the word of God, to, to love and serve a Christ that has accomplished everything for us. So strengthen us, Lord. Father, there are still are many uh, that are, are out sick and not feeling well from the coughs and colds and flus going around. Lord, we pray that many are watching even now, um, but you would strengthen them and you would help them return to their service of you in whatever role you have to them. Lord, we have families who have lost loved ones this week. We pray that you would uh, just show them kindness and favor and help them know that you're in control of all things, Lord. We pray for those grieving families, Lord. Comfort them. You are the God of comfort, as we were reminded by Dwayne today. Lord, we pray for those around the world that spread the gospel that we've just uh, asked and challenged about, Lord. We, we, we ask you to give them favor in their countries and in their ministries, Lord. We want them to be used of you and this gospel to go forward, Lord. We can't wait to sing and be around the throne with the tribes and tongues and, and all the nations that you have drawn to yourself from the four winds. And so, Lord, we long to see that. So give our missionaries favor. Lord, we pray for all those who preach the gospel and train men and women around the world. Lord, help them. Be kind to them, Lord. Now, as we turn to your word, Lord, open our ears. Let us hear, but let us not just be hearers, Lord. Let us be doers. Those men and women, boys and girls, who follow our Lord Jesus Christ, may we be right behind you in the dust of your footsteps. In Jesus' name, amen. In our text this morning, the religious rulers are going to ask Jesus a question. They're going to ask him, by what authority are you doing these things? By what authority are you doing these things? We've been working our way through the book of Mark as is our practice. We are in Mark chapter 11, verse 27 through 33. And here we find a final confrontation. They are after to know why Jesus speaks and does what he does. Authority is just a massive issue with mankind. It always has been. Few people have the authority and the, few that don't, the many that don't want it. It's been a problem since the garden. Satan tempted Adam and Eve and said, if you eat of this fruit, you'll be like God. They, they bit that, didn't they? It's been a problem with us down through time. Often those who have authority often abuse it. Well, Jesus had already highlighted this problem. He, he was warning the disciples. And, and, and here, as he's walking through the temple, we'll look at this in a minute, he has his disciples with him. And here are some men sent from probably the Sanhedrin that are in abuse of authority. And Jesus does not want his disciples to do this, remembered back in chapter 10, just turn back just a few pages here. Jesus warned them of this. In verse 42, as they were complaining or arguing themselves, trying to figure out who will be on the left and right of the Lord Jesus Christ, missing the whole statement that he'd come to die, that he was going to suffer at the hands of these current men that are confronting him. 
And so he addresses that and he says, verse 41, hear this. The ten um, began to feel indignant towards James and John because of this argument. In verse 42, calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. And then I love this phrase, but it is not this way among you. What a strong statement. Christians do not lose our authority for abuse. Jesus goes on to say, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be a servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be a slave of all. And then he brings himself into this as the primary example for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He sets the tone of how we handle the authority God has given us. Jesus never asked these religious leaders for permission. Uh, You can study the scriptures. He doesn't go to them and say, hey, is it all right if I start teaching? Jesus remained perfect, though, as he handled himself. Whether that was in his preaching or teaching or the signs and wonders that he did, he always did things in his perfection and not needing the approval of these religious leaders. Well, this text, this text right here we're starting in today is is the last phase of the conflict with these religious elite of Israel. And it's going to end with the crucifixion. Jesus has had these conflicts all the way from his, the beginning of his earthly ministry all the way to now. And this is the last phase of this. Jesus, from the outset of his ministry, has been exposing these men. He's exposing their false teaching, them as false leaders, propping themselves up. He knew their hypocrisy. And he often brought that hypocrisy out. He showed that they, they taught a works righteousness, a self-works righteousness that was 100% contrary to what Jesus called the gospel of God. Jesus, from the beginning, spoke against their false doctrine. And they hated him for it. But this is the final showdown. Um, this is it. This is probably the Wednesday before the crucifixion on Friday. And this, this showdown was not sparked by so much Jesus' words right here, but more of his actions. The day before, you remember, he hit them very personally. He came in and he cleansed the temple. This was their Black Friday uh, a financial gain of using the temple to gain. They, they would exchange lambs and, and goats. They would exchange money and, and at high interest rates. This was, this was a huge gain from them. And Christ comes in in the middle of this and cleanses out the temple. This all being part of God's plan to show that Jesus Christ is the only way. Well, this final conflict begins with the challenges of Jesus' authority. And Jesus by no means ever hid his authority. He's always spoken of his authority. Matthew chapter 11, I'm going to give you several verses here you can just jot down in way of introduction. Um, Matthew eleven twenty seven. he says this, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. What a statement. All things. You know I love to circle the word all in my Bible because I love to ponder what that means. All. You know, we throw that word around easily. The Bible says all things have been handed over to me by the Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom, listen to this, the Son wills to reveal him. 
This is absolute authority, absolute equality in this verse, and absolute responsibility that Jesus Christ has. This is something he has spoke of often. John chapter 3, verse 35, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Jesus has not hid this. This is not new information that he has this type of authority to cleanse a temple, to preach the way he preached. Christ also approved his authority, proved his authority through his divine actions. We see him doing things all throughout his life. Remember he claims authority over the forgiveness of sins? Now that was an amazing thing. Remember back in Mark chapter 2, here he is with a paralytic. And Jesus says in verse 10, But so that you know that the Son of Man, very choice title, Son of Man, he came, left heaven, took on, added to himself the, the very nature of man, um, uh, the man himself, incarnate, incarnate man. He became man so he could die for us. He adds that to his divine nature is what I meant to say. He adds that. And so he now has this title, Son of Man, so he represents us. But he wants people to know that the Son of Man, this one standing in front of them, has authority to forgive sins. And so he says, I'll prove it to you. Take up your bed and walk. And they murdered, mumbled to themselves. The Luke account, chapter 5, verse 21, says the scribes and Pharisees, maybe some of these same guys are related to them, said, who is this man who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God? Yeah, you're getting it. He had this claim over authority in many areas. Further, he proved his divine power and authority over salvation. John chapter 6, verse 37 All that the Father gives me will come to me. Not might come to me, will come to me. I love this verse. This verse is a great verse of security. God loses none, Christ loses none. And that's what he says, John 6, 37 goes on to say, and the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. So he claims authority over salvation. Furthermore, he has control of the demonic world. We see this repeatedly. At the beginning of his ministry, Mark chapter 1, verse 27, he's in the synagogue. There he's preaching. They say, wow, this man preaches with extraordinary um, authority. In the middle of that walks in a demonic man. And Christ cast out the demon in the synagogue before the religious leaders. And this is what's said about him, verse 21, Mark 1, 27. And they were all amazed so that they debated among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. (laughs) He's never hid this. Um, Shortly after that, he's worked his way over to the Gardenas in Mark chapter 5, verse 7, and here comes a man with the demons. Remember him? He said, I'm legion. I have lots of demons in me. Remember this, don't you? And that demon falls before him and calls him the son of the most high. And he says, what do we have to do with you? Don't cast us into the pit. Don't, it's not our time yet. Full submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. He has authority over the demonic world. It certainly doesn't end with that. He has the authority and power to judge. John chapter 5, verse 22 for now even the father for, for excuse me for not even the father judges anymore listen to this but has given all judgment to the son who's going to judge jesus he's 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 a judge. Chapter 5, verse 27, a little farther in the text, he gave him authority, John says, to execute judgment because he's the son of man. There's that title again. 
because he added flesh to his deity, because he, because he stepped out of heaven and accepted this role, the only way he could save us is become one of us in flesh without sin. And in that role, he is judge. Furthermore, Jesus said he had authority over life and death. What a beautiful scene this is. Um, somebody is sent and says, Lazarus, your dear friend Lazarus is sick. He's, he's going to die. Jesus holds out a few more days to make sure he does. Martha comes to him as they finally get there. One of the sisters, I think it's Martha, comes to him and says, Master, Lord, if you would have been here, surely, she has full confidence, he would not have died if you would have been here. Jesus turns to this dear sister and says, I am the resurrection and life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Whoa, he has authority over life and death. And then think about this. This power over life and death also includes his own life and death, right? John chapter 10. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. And I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to raise it up. Ooh, they don't know what they're getting into, do they? They don't understand the authority he has. One more, everything Jesus did through his divine power and authority was in perfect agreement with the Father's will. John chapter 5, what a, boy, what a passage to study. Uh, probably the, in my opinion here, the deepest theological passage of Scripture in all of the Gospels falls into chapter 5 of John. But in the middle it says, they said, Therefore Jesus answered and said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. Wow. That is absolutely unity with the Father. This is why he could say, I and the Father are one. So he has authority. It's unquestioned authority. However, when you think about this, as we work our way through this, and just we'll get into our points here now, but after this final confrontation, Jesus is going to go silent. Isn't that interesting? He is going to be like a lamb led before the shears or the slaughter. He will go quietly. We will actually see him say very, very few words as he makes his way to the cross. This one who has authority over life and death and salvation and judgment in the demonic world will go silent and allow his killers to carry out the divine plan in order to save us. So this text displays the final strong rebuke of this wicked, wicked leadership. Let's look at a couple of thoughts this morning. Point number one, Jesus was the greatest of all preachers. Jesus was the greatest of all preachers. I want to show you something here that I, I believe he's doing. I think I can prove it. Look at verse 27, the first part of this. It says, and they came to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, and we'll start right there. Stop there for a moment. I think there's no doubt, at least in my mind, that Jesus was preaching to the crowds in this temple. And I think it can be proved because verse 12, which is a very bad chapter break. Remember, the chapter breaks aren't inspired. They, we put those in there so you could find your way around this large book. But it just flows right in. After he's done with these, these Pharisees and scribes and elders, he just turns to this crowd and the disciples that are with him and begins to give this parable. And we're going to get into that next week. And boy, that'll roll your socks up and down what he does here um, uh, with them. And, and so I, I believe he's there. He's preaching. 
And remember, this is what Jesus came to do. This is what he does. He, he came to preach. Again, in the beginning of Mark, chapter 1, verse 14, Jesus says he came to preach the gospel of God. That's what he came to do. Further on in verse 38, he says, let us go somewhere else to nearby town so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. You know why? Because people get all hooked up in the signs and wonders and they were missing the message. Isn't that true today? Everybody wants signs and wonders and all of that and they miss the message that is their only hope. It is the glorious Lord Jesus Christ and the completed canon that he's given us in his word. And so Jesus came to preach over and over we see that. The signs and miracles were to show that he had the authority and power to back up what he was saying. To be who he was. To proclaim that. Oh, but man in his sinful tendency gets so lost in the outward and misses what our hearts need. Notice in 27, he's in this temple walking. I believe this is probably, my personal view is he's on there on Wednesday. And there he's with um, his disciples. He's returned. Notice he's returned back into Jerusalem. So each night he would do what he did. He came in on a triumphal entry. He went and looked at the temple. Remember that, that first entry? He came in and looked around. He leaves. He comes back in the next morning, heads right for the temple and cleanses it. Oh, was that a ruckus. And then he returns back out again. And now he's back in Wednesday morning, death coming Friday. Now he is here. Here he is um, uh, Wednesday morning, and he's back at the temple. Remember, the temple is a massive complex now. Uh, it's, it's got complex courtyards and buildings, and the temple itself is there. This is Herod's temple that he rebuilt, and it sits on upwards of 30 acres of land. So this is no small building anymore. And Jesus would have been walking through the colonnades of the courtyard of the Gentiles. He probably walked across the royal porch on the south side, which was known as Solomon's porch. Large clouds, crowds would have been gathering to him, as was the custom, just to be here, anxious to hear what this one who could walk on water and heal the blind and speak so authoritative what he was going to say. He was preaching and these crowds were with him. Remember, this is only the second time that our Lord has ministered in Jerusalem. And he has the stage as the temple here. He chose this divinely to be here. And so this classroom setting with God's temple as a backdrop was the setting of the stage of Christ's final showdown with these religious leaders. It's time to expose them. Can you imagine uh, what our Lord, the true Prince of Preachers, possibly spoke about as he walked through. This is why I think he's the greatest of preachers. I, I know we call Spurgeon the Prince of Preachers, but I, I think that title goes to Christ. Can you imagine what he talked about there? The temple is his backdrop. He knows he's about ready to go into a conflict with these religious leaders. Doubtlessly, they're, they're sent from the Sanhedrin. This is it. They know they gotta get rid of him. Backdrop of the temple, and, and, and he must have been preaching, doubtlessly. And so I, I thought of maybe a few things I wrote down that maybe he spoke about. May, maybe he spoke about false teachers that were leading them astray. Maybe, because remember, this is Old Testament. We don't have a New Testament yet. He's using the Old Testament to preach. Maybe he went to Ezekiel 34. There, that great passage that exposed the wickedness of Israel's shepherds. And he said something like this. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my flock has become a prey, my flock has even become food for all the beasts of the field for a lack of a shepherd. 
my shepherds did not search for my flock, but rather the shepherds fed themselves, and they did not feed my flock. Oh, it's exactly what they were doing the day before. Maybe he spoke on those things. He must have highlighted the dangers of self-righteousness and the rejection of man's filthy works before God. Psalm chapter 14 could have been his text where he says, they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. There is no one righteous on their own. Doubtlessly, Christ spoke about the lack of our own ability to come to God. We don't have the righteousness to come on our own. We need his Furthermore, maybe he spoke of divine judgment and eternal hell that awaits those who reject the gospel. Maybe he went to Psalms 9 and talked about the wicked will return to Sheol. They'll go back because of the rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Certainly he spoke of what it takes to know and believe the truth, a contrite and broken heart. Maybe he brought them, brought them to that great Psalm of David, Psalms 51, where David repents and, and says, a broken heart, a contrite heart is what you desire, God. Not self-centered and self-righteous. He was, Remember, he would be preaching the gospel of God. Doubtless, he would have spoke of the peace of God that passes all understanding. Maybe he took him to the great passage in Isaiah 52, which would have spoke about him and, and the truths that he was bringing. How lovely on the mountain are the feet of him who brings good news. Doubtlessly, Christ was bringing them to the knowledge that he alone could save them. He is the one. It is his feet that bring the good news that Isaiah speaks of who announced peace and good news and news of happiness, who announced salvation. Oh, I, so often when I study my Bible, I go, Lord, I, I, I don't know if I want it when I get there, but I want to see the replay on this. I want to know what the sermon was about. Maybe he spoke of the compassionate love that God has for sinners. I think our Lord probably did that. He, he knew that God loves sinners Maybe he reminded them of what Nehemiah said as Nehemiah was helping them come to repentance of their sinfulness and the destruction of the nation. And and Nehemiah said, I beseech you, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant, and think about this, and the loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Maybe the Lord spoke of the love of God and us loving him. Maybe he gave warnings of pride and self-righteousness desired that he does not want their sacrifices. I did not desire your sacrifices. I want your love. I want your obedience. That's, that's, that's what was taught through Jesus in Matthew 9. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous. If you think you can get to God through your own works, he says, I didn't come for you. You're on your way to hell. I've come for those who need my righteousness. See, this teaching would have brought the religious leaders right out of the shadows. They're sitting there watching him, watching him draw people to himself because there's no other way to the Father except through the Son. They're watching him draw people to themselves and they're ready to react. And this is what we see in our next point. Number two, the hell-bound blind guides, guides begin their attack. The hell-bound blind guides begin their attack. Shortly after this encounter with Jesus, just between now and his arrest, he gives this infamous sermon of of Matthew 23 where he gives these eight woes to the leaders of Israel. 
And they are described as a blind guide that's leading people to hell. This is what he's up against. This is what these people are doing. Notice in verse 27, you actually see these groups of people. I want you to be aware of some things. Notice the article that's before each one of them. It says, the chief priest and the scribes and the elders came to him. It's interesting the way the scriptures are written, aren't they? This is making up uh, uh, probably the makeup of the Sanhedrin. These, these groups would add members. There were 70 members to the Sanhedrin, those who believed they had the spiritual oversight of the nation. And so here he's delineating these three groups are coming. Now, I don't think that all three of these groups, uh, all 70 of them came, but they're probably a group that's representing them. But these are exactly who Jesus said were going to murder him. Just, just not too long before this, Mark chapter 8, he said he began to teach that the Son of Man was going to suffer many things and be rejected, now he notices, by the elders, by the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. So here it is. Just like he has seven, said, I think there's 11 times Jesus says, tells his disciples, these group, this group of these three that make up the Sanhedrin, they're gonna kill me. And now here they are right in front of him. What's interesting also is um, rarely did this group ever join efforts together. They really didn't like each other. They had had different doctrines they they believed in. The Sanhedrin um, was made up of these elders and these high priests and these scribes and so forth and and Sadducees and so forth. They, They didn't even believe the same in a lot of things. They fought over things. But isn't it unique that here, when the Lord of glory there, their only hope to ever see the Father, their only hope to ever see the kingdom of God, they join forces. You ever have that happen to you? Have, have people that maybe didn't like you join up and say, well, look, well, I don't really like you, but I don't, I don't like him more. And this is what's happening in this story. Now, verse 28, look at this with me. And began saying to him, so the, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, these delegates from probably the Sanhedrin here, they began saying to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? Well, this inquiry would have been legitimate in keeping with uh, their responsibilities as self-proclaimed supervisors of the religious life of Jesus. You know, they, they saw themselves as that. And it's interesting. This, we need to remember, this, this group was not something we find in the Old Testament. That there should be this group of men who oversee this. The nation of Israel has always struggled to let God be God to them, right? We, we need a king, right? We need a king like the rest of the nations. Well, you got one. His name was Saul. That didn't go very well. Well, down through time, they've continued to do that. And, and of course, these groups, many of these groups came up in the silent years uh, between the Old Testament and New Testament, and now they see themselves as the self-proclaimed supervisors of the religious life of Israel. However, this question was, was not prompted by curiosity. <laughs> they were not going, huh, well, you know, really, how do you do these things? It was an attack, and they needed to know what kind of authority or, or who had the direct, who directed him to exercise what he's done. And this is why they asked him for his credentials, authorizing him to do these things. Notice these things. 
It says it twice in that verse 28. These things. So, so make no mistake, the, the priority, uh, I mean, the prior day of the cleansing of the temple was driving this attack. Um, and, and there's more to it, though. He comes into this triumphal entry, and everybody's throwing coats and palm branches down, and they're singing messianic songs to him. And, and, and then he cleanses the, te- the, the temple, and he's preaching, and these crowds are coming on, and they're getting nervous. And they want to know who's given this authority to you. These massive crowds are following, and they're listening to him, and, and they can see their money, their power, and their instruction slipping away. And they want to know what's going on here. The Luke account is fascinating. Chapter 9, 19, uh, 1947, 48, tells us that the people, it says this, were hanging on every word when he was teaching. They're hanging on every word. And here's this Lord Jesus Christ that they're hanging on his words, not theirs anymore. And you can see this massive, uh, self-centered uh, hatred toward the Lord Jesus Christ. They knew they were facing a massive problem here. They knew there was a problem. They knew they needed to destroy the Lord Jesus, but they needed to do it without losing the nation. They wanted the devotion of these people. It's funny, it is not hard to look at this, and even look today at what we would call politicians. Um, they, keep their, they seem to keep their composure, but they hate him. They keep their composure, but they hate him. good politician can learn to do that. They can know they don't care for the people. They don't care where the people want things to go. But they'll hold their composure knowing that they want to figure something out or show their own power and strength. And so they craft this very carefully set of questions. They probably worked on this overnight. They gathered. The Sanhedrin probably talked about these things. And here this attempt to expose Jesus' unauthorized actions of cleansing the temple and coming into Jerusalem the way he did. That was their goal. They want to expose him through these questions. But doubtlessly, they knew his claim to equality with God, and that was blasphemy, and they, they want to expose him. Third thought. Threatened leaders versus the authority of Christ. Threatened leaders versus the authority of Christ. Well, they're outmatched. They just don't know it. Malachi chapter 3 Um, as the Old Testament closes, is a great passage of the promise of the coming of Christ. And and both telescopic, his earthly ministry, then his future ministry um, and future return to the world. Um, But the verse starts out this, and it says this, and I thought of this verse as I, I thought about these men coming up to Jesus Christ. The verse starts this way, and who can stand when he appears? Who can stand when he appears? They've worked all night coming up with these two questions. And they think they got him. The Bible says, who can stand when he appears? And then the Bible says this in Malachi 3, 2. For he is like a refiner's fire. He's going to return a question here that they will not know what to do with. This is what he does. He has the ability to to come come in and expose things that men think they can hide. He can show the truth of them. John chapter 5, verse 26 and 27. Again, I go back to this text. He says, For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave the Son also to have life in himself. He gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. So here he is, these religious leaders matched up against the Lord Jesus Christ, the creator of the world, one dressed in humanity but still 
equal to God in every essence. Every essence. Now, these representatives from the Sanhedrin had no idea who they were dealing with. They're dealing with the Logos. He's both the power and wisdom of Christ. He is all the fullness of God himself. So Christ, Christ here now is going to divinely respond to, this, to these charges that they're making, these questions that they're making, in order to expose the leader's heart. Now, furthermore, in chapter 12, we'll get into this next week, he's going to use a parable to say, by the way, I know you're going to try to kill me. He's going to use this parable, to, and it's, it's amazing. They're going to go away knowing he knows that they know he's going to kill, try to kill them. And so we move to verse 29 as we look at Jesus' response to them. Now Jesus said to them, I will, I will ask you one question, and you answer me. And then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. So these religious leaders would soon know that they've walked into a, a common practice that they were taught in rabbinical school. The rabbinical school taught them to uh, counter a student's question with another question. The reason they did this is they were trying to direct, they had been taught to direct them to the right direction by using a counter question. Now, Jesus knows their direction is absolutely sinful. It, it's absolutely destructive of what they're trying to do. So Christ is going to point it in the right direction in order to expose their heart. Notice the phrase. He goes, I will ask you one question and you will answer it. Even in his response to these leaders, he speaks with great authority. Great authority here. So though they attempt to ask Jesus several questions, Jesus uh, just simply says, I'm gonna ask you one, and if you get this right, basically it'll be the answer to your question. So Jesus demands for them to provide the answer to his question, which in turn would answer their question. Now, his conditional promise here you give a clear answer to the question um, that I ask you, and I'll give you a clear answer to mine. Verse 30. Was the baptism of John from heaven, from heaven or from men? Answer me. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? The Lord's counter question puts these religious leaders squarely between a proverbial heart rock, doesn't he? And um, in a hard place. That he, he, he has the perfect question. Because he knows all things, of course, right? And so when Jesus speaks of John the Baptist, he's not, he's not just merely speaking of his, his baptism ministry. He's speaking about all of his ministry. All the things he preached. All the things he did. And so the elevation of John's authority was the test case which would reveal the qualifications to the authority that Jesus had himself. So clearly, Jesus is simply um, applying the same authority that John ministered to his authority, right? Now, Jesus was a kind of teacher that, that um, I think he was kind, and I think about my seminary students, this is the difference between an essay question and a multiple choice. Which one was it? Was it from heaven, or was it from men? So he's giving them, he's giving them two alternatives, which it's from, from God or from men? In other words, was John's ministry divine or was it human? And, and the simple question turns the tables on these attackers. And their wicked hearts are, are now in this impossible quandary. They begin to wrestle. And notice the verse 31, it starts to share, the Bible starts to share what was going on with them. They begin to reason among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, then why did you not believe him? 
Well, notice they're gathering in this less than holy huddle, right? The word reasoning means they're dialoguing and they're, and they're debating. And doubtlessly, there's some saying one thing and there's others saying another thing. And, and, and I would imagine one of the group probably said, you know, I, I can't say John the Baptist is from God. That guy called us a brood of vipers. And the other guys are going, whoa, 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 whoa. But, if, but the, the people, man, the people, that's where the bucks roll in, man. That's where we get our, our praise and all of our glory. But if they don't like it, you can see this debate going on. He's got them trapped. And you know why they're trapped? Because their hearts are wicked. We don't have to be trapped when we come to God's word. When you're contrite and broken before the Lord. We should look at that count just briefly here. Look at uh, Matthew chapter 3. Because I want to show you that these guys, it may have been some of these guys that went out. Matthew chapter 3. Verse 5, it says, Then Jerusalem was going out to him in all of Judea and all of the district around the Jordan. So this is a massive gathering coming to see John the Baptist preach. He's been crying from the wilderness, make ready the uh, straight paths for the Lord. This has been his command. This is what he was sent to do. And they were baptizing them in the Jordan River and confessing sins. But notice John sees these clowns coming. He sees these men, right? Verse 7, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, that would be part of this group, Coming for baptism, he said, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Oh, man. Who is this guy dressed in camera hair with a leather belt with locusts and honey as a snack? Who is he to call us out? Notice he goes on. John says this, therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance. I really love that verse. You know, we can say we repent of sins, but... But if there's no fruit of that, if there's no change in, in our direction, right? And John says, look, if you're really, if you're really here to know what's, what's, what this message is I'm about and this coming Messiah that I am a forerunner, that I'm not even fit to undo the strap of his sandal because I must decrease and he must increase. It's all about him. If you're really here for that, show fruit. Show fruit. This is a massive exposure early before even Jesus' ministry is fully on the scene. And he says, do not suppose that you came to save yourselves. We are Abraham for our father. For I say to you that these stones, God is able to raise up as children of Abraham. That was always their line. Well, who do you think you're talking about? We're the sons of Abraham. That self-righteous, pontious, arrogant, sinful nature would come out of them. And, and John catches it before it comes out. He goes, don't even say to me that you're sons of Abraham. If he wants that, he could just turn stones into sons of Abraham. So they don't like this guy at all. They didn't like him, and they cheered his death, probably quietly. And now Jesus is saying, hey, was his ministry from God or was it from men? See, they're in a huge quandary here. We can't leave out verse 10. He says, the axe is already laid at the foot of the tree. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into fire. He knows. They know John's talking about him. They do not like John the Baptist, and yet that's the illustration Jesus is countered with. And they don't know what to do with that. This is a massive conjury. Look at verse 32 back in our text. They come back. 
And they're in this little less than holy huddle. They were saying, but if we say from men, they were afraid of the people. For they considered John to have been a real prophet. So the people believed that John was truly a prophet sent by God. And like, like politicians down through the age, their fear of people is greater than truth. They still do it today. They say whatever needs to be said and, and the truth is buried in, in lies and sugar-coated in, in trying to get a vote or whatever it may be. These men are no different. They, they don't speak the truth in love. We do that. That's what we do. That's why we preach the way we preach. That's why we love the way we love. We, we speak the truth in love. And so if you have somebody who's in sin, friend, if you have someone in sin, you should go to them, brother, our friend, I love you. I, I, but God opposes sin. And, and he wants you to repent. See, these guys didn't, wouldn't do that kind of stuff. Everything is covered up and, 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 and mirrored, uh, marred in this self-righteousness. We speak the truth in love, but we speak. The cross-reference here is amazing. Luke chapter 20, verse 6, it said, But if we say, this is them, from, from men, all of the people will stone us to death. <laughs> They were done. The Lord Jesus had them cooked because their hearts were wicked. Their hearts didn't want what God wanted. They wanted what they wanted. And so to reject God's true prophet was equal to rejecting God and blaspheming God and his word himself. And so we see in the beginning of verse 33, they break the huddle, they come back before Jesus and answering and they said, we do not no, we do not know. That's all they could come up with. Clearly, these two alternatives could condemn the leaders of the nations if they come one way or another. And the only thing they can come up with is we don't know. This in itself was a disgraceful answer that disqualified them. Here you are to be the leaders. Um, Jesus uh, uh, challenging Nicodemus, remember chapter 3, and, and praise God that God even saves men out of this kind of uh, uh, realms and, and these people that walk in this life because Nicodemus, we believe, comes to faith later. But he says, you're a ruler of Israel and you don't know this stuff? See, see, you can have the greatest mind in the world and you can study like crazy, but if you are about you, if your heart is filled with you, if you're the greatest love of your life, if your word and your thoughts are greater than what God's are, you will find yourself in a quandary uh, often. You'll find yourself on the outside of God's will, and finally you'll find yourself under the judgment of God. So we lay down our lives to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what they couldn't do. And so to answer the questions, they would only make themselves to appear as fools, as that's what they were. And so this whole story is a vivid example of what happens to people who won't face the truth. They knew what Jesus said. Remember he says, for which great good work are you going to stone me? They said, for none of them. Why were they going to stone Jesus? Because you make yourself out to be God. He, he, he had not hidden it. It wasn't like Jesus was saying, well, I, I, ha I can't reveal that I and the Father are one. I've got to kind of sneak around and try to win the vote and try to get there but not reveal the truth. Jesus never did that. He was right out front. 
I and the Father are one. What the Father's doing, I'm doing also. I see what the Father's doing, and I do it as well. Philip, how can you say, show me the Father? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's never hidden his authority. He always was transparent of who he was. But if you don't believe that truth, you're not free. Jesus says the truth will set you free. So the opposite is when you reject Jesus as being God, of having full authority of our lives, our our death, our lives, our salvation, our eternal destiny, when you reject him from that authority, you live in absolute slavery. We are only free. We're only free because Christ sets us free. And we believe him to be who he said. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, standing in full equality, sharing his glory and essence. In chapter 17 of John, he says, return to me the glory we shared from the foundations of the world. I stand in full equality with you. And then John just goes on and says, and was God. And this is our last point. Self-righteousness and denial of Jesus' authority will lead to eternal death. It'll lead to eternal death. Matthew chapter 10, verse 33, Jesus said, whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. What a frightening verse. Every world's religion outside of Bible-believing Christians deny Jesus as being God. And he will deny them before, their fa- before his Father. And this happens because of self-righteousness and hardened hearts That's what's happening with these men from the Sanhedrin. They're they're self-righteous. Their hearts have been hardened. The true answer would have only um, uh, set them free from that if they would just said, "You, you have to be the Messiah. No one can do what you've done. No one can speak. But instead, because they could only think of themselves and the authority and power and money and all the things that would be lost, they could not even bring themselves to answer the question. And so the counter question had already revealed the answer but they were unwilling to face that truth. And the word of God fell on the hard rock road of their hearts. And it never landed in soil. And again, I'm reminded that there were men like Nicodemus that God did rescue out of this group. But most of them died and are waiting eternal judgment because they rejected who Jesus was. Notice verse 33. It, it really is a verse of, of condemnation. Jesus said to them, nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. I.e., if you don't know who I am, you're a dead man. That's what I think he's saying. If you don't know me, if you don't know the authority I hold, if you don't know who I'm from and what I do, you are an eternal dead man. And then he's going to turn around and do this parable in chapter 12 that we'll get into next week. And he's going to show that's you. You're the ones that beat and killed the prophets. And then I sent my son, the owner of the vineyard, and you murdered him. And he will expose their hearts. And they will have nothing they can do, nothing they can do but kill him now. Because their hearts are exposed. If Jesus was... Jesus was done with these religious leaders. uh, For three years, he proved himself. Time and time again, he proved himself. He proved his power and wisdom. Um, He he proved that he held the deity of God, and yet they had rejected him. And they proved, they proved they were from their father, the devil. 
Jesus told them that in John 8, 44. You're from your own father. It's the devil. Shortly after this, this one last passage I want to show you, then a few comments and we'll close. Look at John chapter 12. These are Jesus' last final public words. I think they're probably said on Thursday. We'll get into this a little bit later, but um, John chapter 12, verse 35 As far as the scriptures are concerned, these are the last public words that Jesus says before he is crucified. And I want you to see this and see how fitting it is with these men that deny him. Start in verse 35. So Jesus said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. And man, it was little. It was just hours. Walk while you have light so that the darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. These men did not know where they were going. They were walking in darkness. They were answering in darkness. They had no answers because they're in darkness. Verse 36, while you have the light, believe in the light so that you may, uh, may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and he went away and hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophets, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and he has hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their hearts and be converted and I would heal them. An amazing statement. Those are his last public words. And this is the group that has opposed him throughout his ministry. One last thought. When Jesus comes in, one of his last trips as he's coming into Jerusalem, he stops most likely in the Mount of Olives and he's looking across the Kindred Valley to the nation. And Luke 19 records this in verse 41. And when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it saying, if you would have known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace. Man is at war with God, brothers and sisters, at war with God. They've been at war with God from Genesis 3. There's only one way to be at peace with God, and it was through Jesus Christ, and he was standing on their dirt. He was right there. And he says, if you would have known the ways that make peace, receiving me is what he's speaking about, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. Friend, if you reject Jesus Christ, you will perish eternally. And that's what so many have done. They followed religions that build up self and do this and don't do that or just don't believe in anything. And the truth of God and the Lord Jesus Christ is hidden from him. This one thought on signs and wonders. Friends, signs and wonders were given to the apostles to the completion of the Holy Spirit, but we were given something greater than signs and wonders. We were given the word of God. It's far greater, and too many of our friends that chase this stuff, they don't realize what they're doing. That the signs and wonders were to help you see the power and the authority of God's word. Even our apostles, our dear friends, Paul's and James and Peter's and John's and so forth, they would love to have what we have, this full, completed canon. You have the power of God's word. And so if you struggle with some of those things, realize we have the authority of God's word. You can speak. You can deal with situations. Maybe you have someone who's struggling with sin in your life. You can boldly but humbly speak the words of God in a loving way. Speak the truth and love to them. You have the authority of God's word behind you. 
Oh, friends, too many Christians let their friends live in sin and don't say anything. You don't need signs and wonders. You have the word of God. And you ourselves, right? We don't need to live in sin ourselves. It's so easy for us to live in sin and say, well, you know, it's not that bad. Oh, let the word of God pierce your heart. Let the glory and the person of this Jesus who came and stepped out of heaven and took on flesh and dressed himself in humanity so he could die, let that be the motivation from the word of God that causes us to say no to sin. You have trouble in your life. I have trouble in my life because of sin. God has given us his word. It's the most powerful thing we can have in our hands to believe the Bible, to teach the Bible, to preach it to ourselves daily. Your salvation comes through Christ. It's by him, it's through grace, it's through faith, it's through his word and it's for his glory. You don't need anything else, amen? These men rejected it. I pray you're not one of these. I pray you're not a man who is religious or a woman who's religious on the outside but never know Jesus. May God open your heart today to his truths. Father, we thank you for the remembrance of Jesus' life. It's been pinned and etched down for us in this perfect word of God so that we would never forget it. It was not an easy life our Lord lived. He was tempted in all ways. He suffered in all ways as we do. And for, Lord, that's really, in some sense, an understatement. He went through so much more than he, we did. He had the sins, our sins, pressed upon him in order to be a propitiation, to satisfy the Father's wrath against us. But even before that, Lord, he had the, the religious leaders of the world against him. He had a nation that took their soldiers to mock him and crucify him. Lord, he, he stood against that all. Because he knew the only hope for Scott Menez and for any other believer that could put their name in this sentence, our only hope was Jesus. Our only hope was that he would get to that cross and, and he would suffer and he would die and you would judge him like he committed our sins, but he would beat death and rise from the grave and have victory over sin, Satan, and death and be ascended on high and sit at your right hand and wait for your enemies to be made your footstool. That was our only hope. And he did that. And he accomplished it. And we believe it, Lord. This church believes it. Many in this room or those hearing this message, we believe this. And our hope is the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for any that might be hearing this message in one form or another. Lord, let, not, let us not be blinded by our religious walkings. So many, so many live in a way that they think God will accept them. Lord, it's a, it's a death march. And so I pray that today you would open the eyes of the unbelieving. For us that are believers in you, Lord, may we cling to your word. May we hold to its sufficiency, its authoritative, its inerrancy. We, may we hold to these things, Lord, so we may know you better and walk in a way that's pleasing to you because you're worthy of it. Lord, we thank you. Thank you for your life recorded for us. We find such strength and motivation and encouragement. Thank you, Lord Jesus. In this, this great name, our Savior, we say amen.